RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Optimum Nutrition. To get a 40% discount across their entire batch-tested range, use the code RENEGADE40 at www.onacademy.co.uk forward slash elite portal. And of course, members of the Rugby Renegade online subscription program get an exclusive 50% discount plus free access to the Optimum Nutrition online nutrition course. Yes, welcome to episode 78 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain, and today I interview Professor David Bishop, an experienced physiologist at the uh, Victoria University in Melbourne. Uh, and we talk specifically about mitochondria. It's kind of a mitochondria special, something I've been looking into a lot recently. And you should learn what mitochondria are and why they're so important to performance and what the different studies that um, David's done a lot himself, um, what they show the best way to develop mitochondria and why that could improve your performance. Um, so some really good information, um, some good scientific information, but also some practical training applications as well. So uh, we're sure you're going to get tons out of this. So give us a listen and let us know what you think. Hi, David. Welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. It's great to have you on. Uh, let's start with you telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into sports science and uh, who you've worked with and, and what you're working on. Yeah, I think the... Um some ways the journey is probably similar to a lot of people that you've spoken to. So I always in always enjoyed sport and did a lot of it when I was when I was younger. Then went to the university and studied to be a, a physical education teacher and did that for a couple of years and I'm not really sure why, but decided that wasn't the road I wanted to take and didn't really know what to do actually and went back and did some research. And really enjoyed that. So since then, I've been involved in exercise and sports science research. The first, my first job out of um, after the PhD was working at the Western Australian Institute of Sport. So that brought me into contact with um, some of the teams that were training there. So obviously, teams getting ready for the 2000 Olympics at that stage. So there was hockey and water polo and a few other sports like that. So got interested in trying to keep research going. And, and one area that seemed to have been a little bit under-researched was this this idea of repeated sprintability. So that became a little bit of a, a focus for the next probably five or ten years. I mean, to be fair, I haven't done a lot of that on that topic in the last, you know, recently some of my interests have been more towards um, you know mitochondrial adaptations and endurance, but that was one of the things I got into. And still, still fascinated because I think it's when you've got those crossovers of you know with repeated sprintability, you need to be fast and powerful, but you also need to be able you know to maintain that and resist that to resist fatigue. So a little bit like concurrent training, you kind of trying to develop two fitness components which don't always go well together so still um still quite interested in the idea yeah definitely and hopefully we'll we'll touch on obviously repeat sprintability but also you know what you've moved towards now and i'm glad you mentioned mitochondria because that's one of my questions a bit later on but let, let's kind of delve into that uh repeated sprintability i mentioned before off air that i i 
watch you um, present uh, uh, West Bromwich Albion on repeated sprint ability and some of the research around that. So um, maybe touch on some of the training approaches that you've looked at in, in research for developing this um, repeated sprint ability. Yeah, I think one of the the one that I've always been interested in that in that topic is, and I've seen a little bit of interest on Twitter about it lately. Is you know how do you best go about developing it? And it's not it's not always as neatly split down the middle. But I guess one approach that I've that people use is to do repeated sprints. So you know try and improve the the quality you want to improve by doing that particular action during training. And I guess I'm, I've, my approach has been that I'm not convinced that that's the way to go. And, and I think if you look across, uh, I'm not saying you won't get some improvements there, I just think it's not the best way, it's not the optimal approach. And, and I think you see it a lot of a lot of other sports like that as well. I mean, I, if you think of Athletes will do, for example, you know, a lot of their training and probably most of their training is nowhere near their race pace and lots of other sport where you might do strength or hypertrophy training. You're lifting loads which are very different to those that um, you're going to encounter during the actual sport. So I guess my approach has been to try and better understand what determines repeated sprint ability and then design the training to try and develop some of those basic physiological qualities which which we think are important for repeated sprint ability. Okay, cool. So it, it might be a good time now to kind of define exactly what, what the research uh, cat, categorises repeated sprint ability as, I guess, so, so everyone's, you know, understanding what we mean. Could you do that for us? Yeah, and I think it's, um, you yeah, know, there's no precise definition, but we start broadly, then and it's it's the ability to be able to do an all-out sprint. And typically, when, when we wrote our review a few years ago, I defined that as less than about six to ten seconds. I mean, there's things like, you know, um, repeated wind gates where you're doing, th you know, 30-second all-outs. But I don't, even though it's called a sprint, I don't necessarily consider that a sprint because of the, the, the large drop-off in power that, that is occurring during that. So the ability to do a, a short duration sprint, say six to 10 seconds, have a short recovery, and then to be able to, to repeat that sprint. And I think the, um, and, I, and I think we're, you know, we're typically talking about um, team sports today. I think that, that, pretty, uh, that fits in pretty well with what happens during a game as well. Because I mean, as a, as a rugby player or pretty much any team sport, if you're, if you're sprinting for more than six to 10 seconds, that's going to be either that, you know, someone's done, either you've done something brand or the other team's completely, you know, stuffed up. So it's pretty rare that that's going to happen. So I think keeping those short duration sprints is also consistent with what happens in the, in the field as well. Okay. I'd say the, uh, one of the other challenges is, um, so that's the, and there's obviously various tests and we've published some papers on on tests to, to test repeated sprint ability. And I mean, fundamentally it is that, you know, do a short sprint, have a, a, a reasonably brief recovery, and, you know, a recovery that doesn't allow you to fully recover 
and then to repeat that sprint uh, a few times. One of the challenges then becomes how do you interpret the data as well? And I think that's also where sometimes there can be some confusion because if, if you think about, and we've, we've seen this, if you got, for example, uh, an ultra marathon runner into the, into the lab or you tested them in timing gates and during sprints, they probably superficially might look like they've got really good repeated sprintability because they're going to have a really poor first sprint and a really poor second sprint. They're going to be able to maintain their sprints at the same level. But the repeated sprintability has to also include an element of that first sprint. So I guess having good repeated sprintability means having a really good first few sprints and being able to maintain that that um, that fast sprintability for a number of sprints. Yeah. So, in terms of uh, the the adaptations we speak, well, we see in response to these different types of training to improve repeat, uh, repeated sprintability. Maybe um, you could kind of talk about what some of the research has looked at in terms of uh, training approaches, and then some of the adaptations to them. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, sometimes the focus can be on that, uh, um, I guess, that recovery aspect, the endurance aspect. And I'll get to that second, but I think, you know, it's important not to forget that one of the one of the best determinants of repeated sprintability is the first sprint. Yeah. So in that respect, it's really, you know, some just, you know, your classic sprint training. So training that'll improve your first sprint power, um, training that improves your, your strength and the power, so strength and power training in the gym. All of those, I think, are, are important component of the repeated sprint um, ability training. And I guess, I guess sometimes people want one training session that's going to hit everything, whereas I think what probably what I'd say works better is to be concentrating on those fundamentals. So whether it's during the week or whether it's during some periodized part of the of the training session, then the stuff that team sport athletes will be doing, but doing your sprint strength power training and just focusing on improving that short duration five, six sprint speed, five, six second sprint speed is going to be a, a critical component. When it comes to the the recovery, then the recovery is is fundamentally aerobic, and so that's where having a a trying to get as as well developed um, aerobic system as possible is important. And what we've and there's some really great work from Greg Bogdanis from a while back um, when he was in the UK during his PhD. But I think there's pretty good evidence that phosphocreatine resynthesis in the muscle is probably one of the key determinants of the repeated sprint ability. And so doing that, you know, doing some sort of um, endurance training that develops your, your ability to resynthesize the phosphocreatine is critical. The, there's very little research specifically on that, but because it's aerobic, we have seen it tied to the the lactate threshold. So I guess without um, having 
any other better train any other specific phosphocreatine resynthesis guidelines i think training that boosts the lactate threshold is um it's probably a good way to go there and so we've we've focused on sort of high intensity interval training for that particular training adaptation and that seems to be a effective at increasing the lactate threshold and also quite effective also at um at increasing the rate of phosphocreatine resynthesis and hence um, repeated sprintability. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And I, I, there's uh, a question I'm going I'm to hold off till later, but we're, we're going into obviously you mentioned aerobic and then just initially increasing uh, phosphocreatine levels um, through you know traditional strength and, and speed training. Um, how how do you um, or and lactate threshold? I guess that's going into kind of your more glycolytic stuff. Um, how do you see? I'm, I'm going to skip to the questions. Sorry, I'm, I, I'm spitballing over here. But um, we got, I guess, to be good at repeated sprint ability, um, you need to have, or you need to train all the different energy systems. So, in terms of putting a program together as a as a player or a coach, how how would you periodize those um, those different energy systems, or is it a case of you know trying to train concurrently and, and getting the best out of all of them what are your thoughts on that or is there any research behind that yeah and to be honest i mean that if i um if i was to get into this area that's the key questions you know that i would be looking at i think you know just a, a, a slight sidetrack and then i'll get to your question but we've done um a while ago we we're also i was doing some work with one of the australian rules football clubs and so we've got some data we never published, but you know, one of the things that that really surprised me was that their VO2 max was excellent, but their lactate threshold was really very ordinary. And so, and I think that probably reflects some of the some of the classic sort of training that they they had been doing. And, I, and I'm not sure what the you know the the groups that that you work with, but I, I think there was you know at least. That was about ten. That was you know more than ten years ago, to be honest. But the emphasis was kind of on those extremes where the you know the sprint training at one end, or doing you know some recovery long slow distance type training, and then maybe obviously some small sided games and and things like that, which I, I don't really hit too many. I don't think they hit too many fitness characteristics. So I think that that kind of high intensity interval training you know between lactate threshold and and vo2 max intensity i think probably you know wasn't getting a lot of attention so but i think that's probably some sort of training that i would be trying to 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 get in there and i think sometimes the the battle can be that it it doesn't seem particularly specific and you're you know, well Nobody's ever going to do a high-intensity effort for three or four minutes during a rugby match or whatever. You might, okay, well, that's true, but someone's also probably not going to squat 300 kilos in the middle of a, a rugby match either. You know, the, yeah. you need to develop these fitness qualities to allow you to be able to do on the field what you need to do. And so... And I, so that's sometimes the argument that, that I would use. So I think some of that high-intensity interval training, I think, is is a critical element of developing this um, this ability to recover between sprints. And 
Having said that, though, I mean, I think there are ways to introduce that into training. And I think, you know, sometimes the emphasis, for example, I mentioned the small-sided games, is that the emphasis can be on trying to replicate the, the match characteristics, whereas I think the emphasis should be more on getting the appropriate physiological stimulus. So I think things like small-sided games, if you know, if that's something that you want, you know, that's a regular part and that the players are, are enjoying doing, that can be something that can be modified so that you are hitting the, the required fitness qualities, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, I guess in terms of periodizing it, you'd, you'd in, in early phase of training, you work on those general adaptations um, through the lactate threshold and b- building aerobic and, and uh, speed. And then maybe later on, you transfer that into your, your more game-specific, for want of a better term, with your, your small-sided games. But obviously, you still have to manipulate them so you're getting better adaptations as well. It's, it's always a, a process of trying to improve it and, and get more bang for your buck, uh, so to speak. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, just, sorry, just one thing I'll add there. What was, what was interesting is that we had this... Um, so it was a, I guess in your terms, a Premier League Australian Rules Football Club and we're able to measure their lactate threshold at the beginning of the preseason, at the end of the preseason, and a week after they completed the, um, they made it to the the semi-final, so they made it to the top four. And yeah, what was interesting is that during our preseason, we're able to get a really big increase in in the um, the lactate threshold in the players, and there was absolutely no change in their lactate threshold during the season and you know that's despite obviously you know a two-hour game a week plus small-sided games and you know all their regular training so I think I don't think I'm drawing too long a bow but what that kind of really brought home to me is that you know playing rugby football whatever it might be isn't always going to be the best you know type of training to get the physiological adaptations that you need. So I think that pre-season is critical to get some of that general um, training in there. But if possible, also getting at least some sessions during the you know during the season where you are targeting some of this high-intensity interval training to be able to to top up some of these important fitness characteristics. Yeah, definitely. I think, and you highlight the point. Every week they're playing a, a game. Um, well, you know, hopefully they're playing a game, and um, and that's their kind of specific stimulus, I guess, for those specific adaptations. And then you've got time in the week to work on the more general stuff. So it 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 does make sense, and I guess it is doable. Um, yeah, so in, in really interesting stuff. Um, now, this this next question we ask all the guests on the on the podcast, and obviously. Um, where you might not be working with rugby players at the moment and um, so you might want to apply it to all athletes uh, and what you see in this what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players or athletes make when it comes to strength and conditioning oh um, I think the I'll, I'll reflect on that I think one of the um, it's not necessarily a, a mistake that the the, the players make, but I think one of the one of the really nice things, in some respects, in Australia with the Australian rules football, is that they have quite a long pre-season. So you do actually get their physiological 
capacities that are important for the sport. Whereas I guess, you know, sometimes in, because the season is, can be so long, and I'm thinking especially, you know, football players, is that there's not a lot of time, not a lot of time, not a lot of time to, to get the, um, the, the injury prevention and sort of keeping them at a good level, but getting them up to the, the required fitness can be a challenge. I'm trying to think, the I think if um, I think one thing which is not you know is pretty common across a lot of sports is jumping on trends a little bit too quickly sometimes and you know you, you see this sometimes that whoever whatever the you know whoever wins the the premiership whatever they're doing in terms of fitness and conditioning the next year that's what a bunch of other teams end up copying and um, you know we saw that in Australia for example with one of the one of the more successful teams was doing altitude training for quite a while and then within the next few years it was about half the teams that were doing altitude training as well so I think um, you know you understand it in in sport there's pressure and you know the fear of missing out and and that sort of things but I think sometimes yeah jumping on trends or fads that other successful sports are doing without necessarily evaluating the evidence base for for that decision yeah i've, I've definitely seen that and I've, I've kind of i've even been at a club i won't say which club it was but at the time we had you know a big spike in success from the season before and you and you heard about people kind of trying to find out what we were doing and we were kind of shocked because we were like, well, we're not doing anything you know crazy we're, we're just you know applying the basics and being consistent and things like that but yeah people i guess it's in nature and, and especially in the fitness and and strength and conditioning industry people want to want to find the next big thing and often uh, yeah it can be a bit misguided um so yeah definitely agree with that uh now moving on to your um as you as i said you mentioned mitochondria and, and, and what you're doing on that now and, and um there seems to be a lot more kind of research coming out of that and and it's stuff i've i've been looking into a bit and i know when you spoke back at West Brom all those years ago, um, you looked at the kind of mitochondrial adaptations to some of the training, um, whether it was um, increasing their efficiency or their number. Um, so what what sort of stuff are you looking at now and what are the kind of findings in, to do with performance and health, I guess, because I know there's a lot around sort of health and, and finding that mitochondria, you know, can be issues in, in certain diseases as well. Yeah, no, great. I think it's... Um... You know, all these things that's interesting because there's kind of no end to to the the research. So I mean, fundamentally, what we've been you know trying to do is optimize the the training to improve your mitochondria. And what um, I guess a couple of things that we've seen. One is that sometimes when you, I guess when you look at people will lump kind of content and function together. And assume that they're the same thing, so that okay, if you've got more mitochondria, that you also will improve mitochondrial function. So I guess some of our research is is suggesting that they those two adaptations can happen quite separately and different types of training. So basically, you know, we've been finding that the volume of training we think is really important for mitochondrial content. And it doesn't mean that you can't improve mitochondrial content with high intensity training, but 
what we see over and over again is that the the largest adaptations happen with the largest volumes of training and and if you're an, you know, an endurance athlete that's got plenty of time and that's part of your training then that then that's probably a better approach and if we go back to the that with the rugby type of scenario where there's lots of other types of training that need to fit into a week then some, the high intensity training is probably going to be yeah marginally not as effective but more time efficient and um, better from that perspective and instead we find that the mitochondrial function is better improved by the high intensity interval training so it seems to be around about sort of VO2 max intensity intervals we're seeing the the best adaptations in the um, in the mitochondrial function so you know the ability of it to use oxygen to, to generate um, ATP or energy yeah and and so I, th I think uh, thinking back to your your talk previously it was uh, one one of the protocols was sort of two minutes on one minute off at, at vo2 max is that sort of for six to ten reps would that be about right in terms of a, a training protocol for that yeah put up in the you know the specific times but so typically what if um if I was recommending that type of training I normally look for around about a two to one so two to work two to one work to rest ratio yeah. so we've quite often used two minutes on one minute off we've also done four minutes on two minutes off and so I think, you know, from a from a experimental point of view, we kind of quite often keep things constant to be able to control things. But I think in a you know in a practical scenario, you can play with those numbers. And when I have worked with athletes, and you know, sometimes we've done you know pyramids where we might do you know one minute on, thirty seconds off, then two minutes on, one minute off. Two minutes, four minutes on, two minutes off, and then you know cycle up and down those, and that way you get to induce introduce some variety into the program as well. And so I think the actual, I think the ratio I normally stick to the two to one, but the actual duration I don't think is critical as long as it's more than you know say sixty to ninety seconds. Yeah. With respect to the intensity, we try and get pretty close to to VO two max intensity. And, um, and this is just a, a question of you, you kind of often hear these anecdotal reports or, you know, some some coach said this. And I, I've heard a lot of stuff from reading around kind of Russian material, whether I can get hold of yep. translated stuff. But there's often things saying um, doing too much um, high high lactic work uh, can actually be bad for the mitochondria. Is, is there any research behind that? Because I know there are some studies showing that, you know, real high-intensity intervals, you know, lactate-producing ones, you know, can increase mitochondrial production. Is, is there any sort of research behind that? Is that one of those kind of training fallacies that, that gets knocked about? That's cool. I'm, I'm, it's interesting you've said that. And you've got any, if you've got any literature, I'd love to please send it through. It'd be great. Because we've done – we've actually done a little bit of research on – on that, and I had the <laughs> I had a similar situation. I was working with some Australian kayak um, athletes, and one of the coaches, and I'm I think she said some whether 
I think it might have been Russian origin as well. She spoke to a Russian coach who said the same thing that I remember to this day, and it was probably 20 years ago. She said that lactate destroys mitochondria. And um, I was recently speaking just last, last year with a guy from Ukraine, and he was telling me about some Ukraine, old Soviet Union stuff, suggesting that as well. So there are so there's some interesting um, ideas out there, not too much research. But we've published uh, a couple of papers now where we have shown a, a negative effect of the... So if we separate out and, and hydrogen ions, but of a, of a low pH on mitochondrial adaptations and so you still see them there so you still get mitochondrial adaptations but if you're able to reduce the um the buildup of hydrogen ions it's not a massive effect but we see we see slightly better endurance and mitochondrial adaptations when we're able to to reduce the um the hydrogen ion accumulation during training Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I haven't seen any research yet. It was kind of one of those things, that, oh, you know, apparently the Russians used to say um, say that fact or as a fact. Um, and I, I know Yuri Verkashansky had sort of coined the term anti-glycolytic training where, you, as you kind of said earlier, you, you train um, your ATPPC system um through speed and power training and things like that with full recoveries and then you train your aerobic system um and that kind of that fuels the recovery um aerobically um and then for very short periods of time you do kind of more lactic lactic training um but try and avoid it for most of the time and i just wonder if there's any research back that up um so it's it's interesting that maybe maybe over a long period of time that might be the case yeah and i think that's one of the reasons I mean, and again, it's a big area for debate, but I think doing prolonged training at the, you know, just above the lactate threshold for those reasons not not the ideal way to go about it. And I've also, that's one of the reasons also why I tend to do a, a, you know, a two-to-one work-to-rest re, work ratio. I've seen... Just again, there's no hard evidence, but some other studies where they've done, um, you know, even eight to one, or where anyway, where the where the rest period is is quite a lot shorter, that the adaptation, the aerobic adaptations are are not always as good. So, I think there, yeah, I think there's not a lot of hard evidence, but I, I think there's something in there, and we've done, I think one interesting study was actually in um, in animals. Um, 2006, I think we published it in the Journal of Applied Physiology, but we had rats do treadmill running and they were doing inter high intensity intervals. And we had one group that just did regular training and another group that did the same training, but we gave them sodium bicarbonate before every training session. And so the idea was that they would do exactly the same intensity, the same treadmill speed, but that they would train with less um, accumulation of hydrogen ions in their muscle and we saw I think around about a double of the improvement in their in their mitochondrial respiratory function when we gave them the, the bicarbonate so I think that's kind of a and obviously it's a it's a rat study and they weren't rugby playing rats or anything either <laughs> so the, you know the, the 
the leap from from a rat to a rugby player is a, is a pretty big one. But I think there's something interesting there, and we're 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 still we're pursuing that that at the moment, and just having a look at how lactic acid and the pH influences mitochondrial adaptations. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. It'll be good to see more come out about that. And you, you've kind of touched on it, and, and I've made the mistake myself um, in kind of using lactate and, and the fact that it's, it's actually hydrogen ions that affect the, the pH of it. Could you just explain that? Because there might be some people who, who don't understand that it's you know, sometimes lactate, lactic acid and lactate are made out as, as the, the bad guy when perhaps they're not. Yeah, I think, you know, fundamentally... I think if you're, if you're, um, you know, if you're in one of my classes and you talk about lactic acid, I'll probably mark you wrong. But if I'm talking to an athlete or a coach and they talk about lactic acid, I think you know we're talking about the, yeah, the concepts the same, even if the maybe the terminology isn't imprecise. But yeah. fundamentally, fundamentally, when you're doing high intensity exercise, there'll be a production of hydrogen ions. And there'll also be a production of lactate, and those two processes are going on in parallel. And so, in most instances, an, in, an increase in lactate is a pretty good proxy that there's an increase in hydrogen ions. But as you said, they're they're not. Um, there is a there is a difference, and if the if there is an effect of um, on the the mitochondrial adaptations, then it's the acid part, which is most likely the culprit rather than the the lactate. So I think you know the more correct athletes getting, uh, you know getting tested is that most times a coach or whatever might be measuring the lactate in their blood. So the the more correct term is to to talk about lactate, even though as I said it's it's the the two changes will incur in parallel and and in most cases. A lactate will be a pretty good proxy for changes in pH as well. Yeah, no, thanks for explaining. That. I, I know I learned that many years ago. I won't tell you how many years ago in, at university, but like you say, when you come to speak with athletes, sometimes it's quicker to just to say lactic acid because that's what they'll they'll understand that rather than going on about hydrogen ions and things like that. So yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, now it's great to have someone you know with a research background on. Uh, a lot of times we have kind of applied coaches. So I'd just be interested to kind of pick your brains about what, um, whether there's research you're doing or research that you've become aware of that you're seeing that, that might help um, us applied coaches who maybe don't have enough time to kind of scroll through as much research. Yeah. I think, um, I'm trying to think of what our, some of our research, but I think, um, I still think that, I think the what we're working on a lot at the moment is just how to prescribe exercise intensity, and I talk about the I wouldn't say what people do wrong, but I think something that can be improved. My experience sometimes with um, you know with, with team sports, sports is and a lot of sports is that all of the athletes are kind of training. At a pretty pretty similar intensity, and what that means is that the you know the the really well trained people are probably training a little bit below the intensity that they need. There's a few people in the middle who are probably hitting it, and then you've got a few people who are maybe newer or less fit, 
who are training too hard to get the adaptations that you're that you're hoping for. So I think um, how to prescribe exercise intensity, especially in a in a team sport concept context, is uh, is probably an area that I think needs needs more research and that uh, I think could have some good benefits for um, in, a, in an applied sense. Um, trying to... So would you, would you think that something like maximum aerobic speed is in that regard is, is very useful in that you can program for a, a large group of athletes, uh, you know, have their different distances marked out so it's, it's more individual to them as opposed to just, you know, everyone running the same distance in the same times? Yeah, and that I mean, and I think you know, sometimes it's easy for you know the academic to come in and say this would be really cool, and there's just not enough time in the week to to be able to do that, especially when there's a big squad. But I think that's a pretty good compromise, and and I think a good starting point. And I mean, I've done that with team sports as well, where we've used the you know the results of the shuttle run test, for example, and then based on that, I've um, you know, individually prescribed exercise intensities. And so we've done that sort of thing on an, uh, quite often if we're, you know, if you've got the rugby field or an athletics field where we've done interval training around the field. And so I'll be saying, okay, we're going to do, you know, two-minute intervals. You guys need to do 100, you know, you guys need to do 800 metres in this time. You guys you know, 600 metres and you guys 400 metres will be fine. And then during the recovery is a chance for them to all regroup and then get back to the same starting, you know, have a chat and recover and then get back to the starting. And then everyone has their own individual distance that they need to cover yeah. during that sprint interval. So I think that's, yeah, I think it's um, when you're doing especially high-intensity interval training, that's probably pretty good. I really... I like the the thresholds as well, especially for recovery and for the some of the the long um, low intensity. I think that's a bit more problematic to be able to you know determine some sort of threshold in um, in the team sport athletes and going off a percent of um, of the the max speed is probably the best and most um, feasible compromise at the moment. Yeah, cool. And I guess on, on the, the flip side, at some well, a lot of times the research is driven by what's happening in practice. Is, is there anything you see, um, you know, in, in any sort of arena of performance that you think, oh, that, that's interesting what they're doing. I'd like to sort of um, research that and see what's going on behind it. Yeah, I'm trying to think of anything comes to mind. But I mean, that happens regularly, and I guess that's um, yeah, and some that's you know the discussion we were having before was exactly that about the you know the lactic acid killing the mitochondria. Yeah, it was uh, an, an off the cuff comment by the coach, and thought you know that'd be pretty cool to go and research. So I think most of, or hopefully, you know, a lot of the ideas that we um, do do it comes directly from speaking with coaches and athletes with um i mean we were doing a little bit on the on i guess the polarized type training idea that um steven sealer 
has made popular. And I think that sort of, you know, that directly comes from, you know, I guess athlete practice and trying to understand whether that is a, whether that makes sense as an approach. And I mean, we're just doing some research now on that as well. And, you know, I think, you know, paradoxically sometimes getting that low intensity training can be a challenge because people end up sort of pushing it or trying to keep up with their mates or just going a little bit too hard. So we're trying to do some research into that, you know, how important is it to do the, the low intensity work and and what happens if you don't get that right and if you start, you know, over time pushing up into the higher intensities. Yeah, that's interesting, interesting stuff. Now, um, again, another question we ask all the guests is what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach and are there any um, books maybe about, you know, some of, some of your work, uh, books or resources that you'd recommend? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm biased, but you know, I think having some education or, or training and research, I think, is um, is valuable, and, and not necessarily from yeah, to be a researcher or to be a an academic, but I think just being able to to speak the same language always helps. And I, you know, I think the flip side is for yeah, academics have have um, experience working with athletes, but I think being able to, you know, read a paper, understand the paper, but also being able to, um, com- yeah, I think it's like a communication. Just being able to, you know, if, if there is a research project that you want to do or to understand better, to be able to have the same language so that you know the 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 researcher and the the coach athlete sports scientist can be on the on the same page there so i think um that's always good i think is is good i'm trying to think in in terms of um in books i can't think of anything that really stands out and it's interesting because i think you know if i think in the terms of of research if something's in a book, it probably means that the project has been done five or ten years ago. Yeah. So it's kind of it's a little bit can be a, sometimes a little bit out to date. I think I find um, sometimes with the books, I'll probably more rather than a a sports science book. I sometimes gravitate more towards um, I guess leadership and and management books. Yeah. And. So, the one I, and quite often the, you know, kind of, it's not the whole book that's interesting. There's bits and pieces and everyone probably gets something different. But I think I just um, not long ago finished reading a book called Nudge. And I, I found that, uh, it was interesting. So it was kind of that, um, I mean, the basic premise is that people aren't sensible. And, you know, how can we, what sort of, and I guess, you know, you'd have this in, you know, with athletes, you know, or coaches, you know, rather than trying to you know, use bluster and order people to do what you think is the best type of training, how can you nudge them into 
you know, adopting some of those practices. I'd say, um, and along the same lines, I think a really excellent book I read last year, and I forgot the author's name, is Factfulness. And I've seen quite a few people rec recommend it, but it's really kind of, a, a, I guess, an anti-fake news book. And it's just about, look, here's, actually, I think it opens up with 10 facts that aren't facts sort of thing. And so it just kind of goes through the some skills on, you know, when, you know, if you've got um, someone who's proposing some idea or, or new way of doing things, how can you cut through, you know, the, the hype and have a look at the, the evidence that sits below it and, and make good decisions? Yeah, I think I've I think I've read Factfulness. Yeah, it's a, definitely a good book and a, a good recommendation. Um, now, lastly, David, I know we're running out of time, so uh, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, I guess they can always. Um, any, I mean, they can find my email at Victoria University and and email me. But I'm also reasonably active on on Twitter. So my my Twitter handle is is Blue Spots and yeah, I mean, so quite often, I guess I, I try and tweet sort of exercise and sports science related um, ideas and, and research papers as of both you know others as, as well as um, myself. So I guess anything that, especially I guess you know the the RSA or team sport type training or the mitochondrial adaptation to exercise, you know, I tend to tweet whatever I've been um, reading in the last week or so. Uh, cool. And of course, we will share links to that in the show notes for you, um, for anyone who wants to follow your Twitter or get in touch. Uh, but lastly, David, thanks so much for your time. Um, it's great to talk to you and, and some really interesting topics there, uh, which you've enlightened us on. So uh, thanks very much and all the best. Great. Thanks for reaching out, Jamie. Have a good day. Cheers. So yeah, I'm sure you'll agree, tons of great information there, whether it's just the kind of scientific background or the actual training applications. I'm sure you've got tons of good uh, ideas to train there. So thank you, David, for sharing the, the research and your experience with us and all the best for the future. Um, so guys, if you're struggling from that and you've got some ideas to train but you need some training programs, of course, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com for our membership program and, of course, uh, online coaching where you get individual monthly programs. And, of course, check us out at social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, whatever you use for your podcasts. And, of course, give us a five-star review. We've still got more podcasts to come, so stay tuned. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.